The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So take a moment and adjust so you're comfortable. Nice to be with everybody this morning. Some of you know that once a quarter usually we um, take time to reflect on this recitation that's been done in Buddhist circles since the time of the Buddha where communities of people come together and it's it's a way of acknowledging and, and drawing on the strength of the community um, acknowledging that we're on this path that we value bringing awareness into our lives and so we call that taking the three refuges and undertaking the training of the five precepts for lay people. So I want to talk about this this morning, but in particular about this wise and ethical action in the world. This is really what we mean by undertaking the trainings, the five precepts for lay people, which all have to do with this deepening value of non-harming, specifically, you know, in terms of taking care of ourselves, and then out in wider and wider circles, taking care of everything as we understand and deepen this value, this liberating value of non-harming. In a way, we're finding, you know, little by little, finding ways to tease out all the subtle and often unconscious ways we participate in harm, cause harm, plant seeds for suffering and harm toward ourselves and toward others. And, you know, we may not recognize those places, but it doesn't mean that we're not complicit in these very subtle, sometimes, cycles of suffering. How suffering goes around, how it moves, and this particular training, uh, the Pali word is sila, and sila is like, I think the word actually means this bed or foundation. And there's really no deepening of one's spiritual life without understanding how moral conduct, action, even what we're thinking, what we're saying for sure, how we're acting in the world, without appreciating that it matters. It does matter. And this is what I spoke of the last few weeks. We talked about karma a couple of weeks ago. You can listen to that talk. And then last week, speaking about fixed views. And what we're doing internally in our heart and mind, like consciously or unconsciously living out of a fixed view, an unexamined, fixed, unquestioned view or belief, or just acting this way or that way, that these actions, how we think, how we speak, what we do in the world, they leave an impression in our heart and they leave impressions in everybody else's heart around us. So there are seeds every time, whatever we're doing, even the so-called not doing anything leaves an impression in our heart and leaves impressions in everybody else's heart. And we may not want to be complicit or part of this interdependent world, but that doesn't change 
the nature of our existence here as a human being. It does matter. And this is something to wake up to, that it matters. And then we begin to see that the particular training in ethical conduct isn't this oppressive should, oh, I should be a good human being, I should be a generous human being, I should stop myself from doing this because I don't want to be seen as being unskillful. But we actually begin to directly, immediately sense it as something that's freeing or liberating, enlivening, not deadening. And this is really important. And it, and it really has to do with beginning to own like that morality is nothing, is, isn't something that's imposed from the outside, like from our you know, elders, for example. Oh, this is our, what we're being told how we should act. But it's something that's coming from the inside. It's really, in Buddhist understanding, morality, this deep valuing of non-harming, it really arises from the inside as a cumulative expression of having paid attention to life, to our experience, and the causes for suffering and the causes for release. And that cumulative wisdom, that earthy, grounded wisdom of sila expresses itself as this love for non-harming, this devotion. And the, and the natural result is like, I want to pay attention. I want to listen. I want to go beyond my habits of superficiality and listen more deeply how I might be contributing to my suffering and the suffering of others. What am I not seeing? in terms of the way I think, in terms of the way I perceive, in terms of the way I speak, in terms of the way I act or earn my living in the world, what am I not seeing? That upon seeing it more clearly, I can live in a different way that feels, you know, the impression that it leaves on my heart and hopefully in the hearts around me, it's, it feels good, right? Like that that uh, beauty of living in harmony and that beauty of living with uh, enlivened concern for everyone. Where we're not presupposing that taking care of my well-being is somehow opposed to taking care of your well-being. But that maybe, you know, and I think it's really important, we open our heart to this possibility that the deepest way to take care of my own well-being is to also equally be concerned about your well-being, that they're not actually in opposition to each other, which is kind of more of an, not to put down an animal orientation, but, you know, just that more basic orientation of an individual creature wanting to survive at the expense of whatever it takes to survive with this heart that we have, the sensitive heart that we have as human beings, it's like as we cultivate, develop that natural depth of sensitivity, refinement of sensitivity, and also breadth of sensitivity, empathetically sensitive to the other hearts around us, then we naturally understand that how I take care of myself, how I take care of you, or linked, that they come together, that they're not in opposition, my caring for myself, 
my responding and caring for others. And again, initially the mind might interpret this as work that we have to do. And it for sure seems like work at times. But it's really important that we hear this message and we begin to look, because we're inspired by the message, that sila, living an ethical life, is the most direct, immediate way to experience happiness. And the, the sort of corollary to that is not respecting the value of non-harming, not caring about stepping on our own toes and the toes of others, is probably the direct, most efficient way to suffer and to create suffering for others, right? To kind of live out of that self-centered, superficial understanding, my way, you know, is the way, it's the only thing that matters. I mean, we have so many examples of people, at least in moments, and some people a lot, most of the time, living from this deeply self-centered place. And they may be very destructive, causing suffering, but for sure, when we have that open space, that non-judgmental space, we sense that they are also deeply suffering because of that orientation. It's not a happy place. And we really want to take this in, because it reforms our relationship to morality, where it's a privilege to cultivate morality. It's enlivening, it's liberating, it feels right. It really delivers. You know, and, and it is, uh, it has this contradictory sense because developing morality, this valuing of non-harming, depends, as I mentioned in the guided meditation, on sensitivity. We need to be willing to be sensitive and to feel and to listen and to look and to go beyond the ways our mind has been conditioned. Because the way we've been conditioned is not to be interested because it seems too complex. So there's a kind of um, heat, I thought of that maybe is the best way of saying it, there's a kind of heat that we begin to experience as we value this. It's really a third of the path of awakening. Right? We have sila, this sort of bringing awareness, bringing mindful awareness, wisdom awareness to this world of relationship, how we're relating, how we're thinking, speaking, and acting in the world. That's one third of the whole path. The other third is bringing awareness to the activity of our mind, and then the most subtle part of the path, the th last third of the path, is bringing awareness, wisdom awareness, to the most subtle part of the thinking mind we call view, the sort of deeper unseen beliefs or views that have been established in the mind for a long time and mostly remain unseen, like the view of self, me, as a separate permanent entity that somehow stands behind or outside. So experience happens to me, right? There's that very deep and unquestioned view or belief in self as a permanent entity that stands outside of nature. And it's just a construction of the mind, it turns out. But we have to realize that. It's not enough to hear that and even understand that intellectually. 
we actually have to see that uh, that entity self doesn't exist as the mind has been conditioned to believe and view things as if it exists. So, but right now we're really talking about this first third of the path where we're bringing and valuing bringing awareness into this world of relationships and how we're relating, how we're thinking, what we're saying, and what we're doing. And as I was saying it, well, uh, you know you're doing it well when you start to feel some heat. And it's kind of the heat of the heart seeing what it isn't in the habit of seeing. So normally we act, we think, we speak, and then very quickly we justify what we're thinking, what we're saying, and what we're doing. We create a story in the mind that makes it make sense to us that we're thinking this, that we're saying this out there to other people, and that we're acting in these ways. And then, because you're being encouraged with the Buddhist teachings, we get inspired to shine a light of awareness, this discerning, non-judging, kind, persistent awareness, mindful awareness. And then the result is this moral heat, because we're seeing the, the continuity of mindful awareness allows us to see as we're thinking, as we're speaking, as we're acting in the world, to see what that's setting in motion, what impressions are being left in my heart, what impressions we sense are being left out there in other people's hearts. And it breaks our heart, right? Seeing it all, seeing that we're acting in imperfect ways, that in moments where we really cause ourselves and others harm, we're complicit in suffering, and that we can't trust our habits of thinking and speaking and acting. We can't presume, as we do superficially, that I'm a good person in that sense. Because now, with observation, we're noticing that sometimes we're skillful and sometimes we're definitely not skillful. We're causing ourselves and others harm. And that exposure creates a kind of internal heat, like, oh, I'm not sure I want to wake up to all of this. I don't know if I want to see all this. I might just as soon be ignorant. But in a way, there's no going back. Once we're sort of in that place, we can, we will probably try, you know, and take up habits of distractedness and denial and, you know, somehow justify, I'll do it later, I'll pay attention later, I'll get interested in this later. But it never lands quite right anymore because we realize there is only one way forward in the sense of movement toward more happiness, more release, more enlivened presence in life, like feeling alive. We're living, we might as well feel alive instead of being deadened by habits that go unquestioned. That nobody consciously chooses to live on autopilot. We fall into those unconscious patterns because of missing what's happening. Oh, that old, I'm assuming there's some truth to it, but it's a little bit graphic. But uh, most of you have heard this. Um, evidently, if you put a frog in water and very slowly turn up the heat, 
the frog doesn't realize that the water has gotten so hot that it could cause harm and kill the frog. And it's a little bit like this in terms of sila, this whole part of our life about ethical conduct. It's like we can slowly creep in directions of being more unconscious, more insensitive to how we might be causing ourselves and others harm. And we just end up living a life that's really destructive for ourselves and others. And it's like a dead weight and literally, at least spiritually, kills us. But we didn't see any choice we made to get there. We just ended up there because it was a whole natural but unconscious process where we just justified and justify, justifying. And, and it's just the mind, heart, body just falls into this pattern of justifying greed, justifying hate, justifying disconnection, not seeing clearly. And it leads to this suffering in life. And in a world like we have now, where the, the implications of all of our hearts being ignorant in the way they're ignorant, means we have a world that is driven by greed and hate and fear and denial and distraction. And we sense, hopefully, the sort of powerful things that are moving, like the climate crisis and all the destruction for all the species on the planet that could is happening and will continue to happen. And then the, these sort of pernicious patterns of racism that just continue and other oppressive forces in our culture around difference, around class, around gender and sex, body size, so many different ways that these cycles of suffering keep rolling on. So to wake up, we need to be told so we're not surprised it's going to be hot, bringing awareness into this area of ethical conduct. But we need to be told so we're not surprised by the heat and that we can discern the liberating feeling that goes with the intensity of that heat. Like it feels so good to be seeing what we haven't been seeing because it allows for change and growth. And the deepening of that, um, what is in the tradition is called the bliss of blamelessness no longer trapped and oppressed by these habits of greed and hatred and fear and dismissing, you know, throwing groups of people out of our heart because they're different, they're immigrants, or they're this kind of person or that kind of person. So the the precepts undertaking the training to refrain from harming, killing living beings, undertaking the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been given, really understanding. I mean, just think about how deep and subtle that training, undertaking the training to refrain from taking what hasn't been given, right? It, you see how we realize, I really need to know, like if I buy something, am I really is that exchange really a free exchange? I'll give you this money, you'll give me this thing? Or have people been exploited in terms of this coming to me at this price? 
it doesn't let us off the hook. Oh, it's legal what I did, you know, or other people do this. But we actually need to be willing to listen and to look and to discern and to go beyond sort of the cultural value of the economy and to really understand what are what is this exchange really setting in motion? What seeds of suffering might be cultivated or be set in motion in terms of the environment, in terms of other people? And that's the heat. It's like it gets really complex. But if we identify, like if we keep thinking, misunderstanding that liberation is equated with simplicity, as opposed to liberation really is more equated with this um, fearlessness about showing up. And that's like, a, I find for me, that was a real turning point. Because most of us start our spiritual practice where we, on some level, sense the dukkha, the suffering in life, the difficulty in life, and we want out. I want to be somewhere, some spiritual utopia, where I don't have that tension or that fear, or that heaviness in my heart. And we imagine a, you know, kind of a heaven space where everything will be perfect for me, and I'll be saved. And uh, we go along our happy way on our path until that just doesn't make so much sense anymore. It doesn't line up with our experience, it doesn't line up. But what does start to appear more and more is the freedom that arises when the heart ceases to run away from life, but actually instead turns toward the moment, like this valuing of intimacy, and our actions, our thoughts, our words, start to flow from that intimacy. And you know, when I talk about the refuges and others, other teachers talk about the refuges, we talk about it as Buddha knowing Dhamma, that intimacy of being awake, Buddha, being awake to the way that it is, Dhamma. And then Sangha is that compassionate, wise, nimble, creative action of non-harming, of valuing non-harming. Not that we ever get it right, perfectly right, right, because it's complex, but that we're always, we're not like looking to have the final plan of how to be skillful. We realize that it's always going to involve this intimate, sensitive engagement with the moment. We have to be willing in an ongoing way to be completely exposed to the complexity of the moment. And that, see, our resistance to that exposure is the heat. The heat isn't that, uh, isn't related to the complexity of how to be skillful. The heat is related to our initial resistance because we're pretty sure that freedom has to come from getting away from the complexity. But initially it feels like I have to be skillful with all this complexity. Like, what should I say? How should I say it? Should I say anything? What should I do? How much should I give? Do I need to give here? Should I take care of myself or take care of you right now? From a self-centered point of view, right, it gets really hot. It seems complex. But 
because we're really committed to stay engaged, to keep showing up to the moment, to feel what we feel, it burns away the self-centered orientation so that our participating, our speaking and acting and thinking and being engaged in the moment, more and more comes as a natural process. Not from this point of view of a self, a me, who wants perfection or salvation. But we give ourselves, in a sense, we submit and surrender all of that self-centered stuff in exchange for being intimate. And the response, like how we handle the complexity of each moment and how what we should say and what we should do, we drop the ownership of that. And we allow our participation, it's still going to be imperfect by the way, we allow our, our participation to arise naturally out of that Buddha knowing Dhamma, that being awake, being intimate with the way it is. And we just trust that I'll say something or I won't say something, I'll do something or I won't do something in the moment. So in a way, wisdom is just observing that participation, that active, nimble, enlivened participation, instead of trying to control it, instead of trying to be skillful. But we can't just go there immediately. We have to, because it's the heat feeling the heat that teases out the self-centeredness, the need, the personal need to be skillful, the personal need to be seen as a moral and good and kind human being. All that has to get burned away. I don't think there's another way for it to We can't, like, the self can't say, hey, I don't want to go through that burning process. I just want to go right to liberation, you know, and be a really cool dude, doing all the right things, being woke and you know, skillful and inspiring others, but it doesn't work that way. We enter this world of morality, like wanting to be skillful, wanting not to cause harm from a self-centered point of view. And we don't know much, but we know that engagement is the way forward. So we keep showing up and we notice there's a lot of heat and we just notice that with kindness and compassion and patience. We keep feeling what we feel knowing that like even in terms of our intimate partners or our friends or our pets or our colleagues at work or wider communities you know we just keep showing up because turning away doesn't feel right that we know going numb being in denial thinking it doesn't matter it leaves a taste in the heart an oppression on the heart is this the way? I don't think this is the way. And then every time we engage, we ask, is this the way? And it seems like it's the way. I had a beautiful conversation with James Perez. Some of you know him. He's one of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock and he's been in the sort of teaching community for many decades now, really wonderful person. And uh, James mentioned this really powerful, simple quote from... Um, Angelus uh, Arian, who was a cultural anthropologist, she's dead now, but a uh, really impactful person, died maybe in 2014. And she said once, action absorbs anxiety. Action absorbs anxiety. And this is, I think, her way of talking about 
this taking up this training of morality as a liberating practice where we turn toward engagement with our partners, with our body, with our friends. And in particular, we practice turning toward those aspects of our world that we have habits of ignoring or turning away from or thinking aren't our responsibility. And it, well, we know we're doing it right because it starts to feel hot, like, oh, this is getting more complex, there's more uncertainty, I'm more uncomfortable about how so much of my ways of relating have been based on ignorance, based on habit, cultural habits, conditioned habits, not on really feeling and seeing and discerning what's what are the underlying networks of causality here? What is getting set in motion? Like, how does power work? Who's getting exploited? Who's being harmed? And knowing that, how does my action naturally and organically begin to change? Once I know what happens to plastic, you know, we think when we put plastic in the recyclables, it gets reprocessed and become something else but now they're being a little bit more honest most of the plastic that gets recycled isn't that way you know and just like we might think you know our institutions have been reformed and kind of racist policies have been teased out of the criminal justice system and other governmental and economic systems and then we read an article or we hear something we realize no these systems continue you know masquerading as good policy or as kind of addressing some issue this way or that way like you know the obvious example is all the drug policy over the last number of decades and how the, the sort of terrible racist implications of the US drug policies and criminal justice policies and when you see that the obvious I mean it's so obvious once you begin to see it but it's amazing how long we can remain unaware ignorant and so this is the thing about sila, it really requires a willful turning toward life and not being surprised by the heat and discomfort of that and hanging in there long enough to begin to discern that flavor of liberation. Like, don't want to do it another way. This has got to be the way. This feels right to lean in, to turn toward, to feel the heat and to let the heat guide us in terms of how our speech, how our actions, how our ways of thinking and perceiving begin to change. That's that heat, that disturbance of seeing more clearly, feeling more deeply, is what transforms habit energies. So how are we going to be changed if we don't use this intersection of our sensitive heart with the way the world works, that's what transforms our behavior. That's where skillfulness comes from. Sangha, this third refuge we're going to chant in just a moment, arises because of the intimacy of Buddha being intimate with Dhamma the way it is. And that's really just another way of talking about sila, this, this really beautiful, enlivening, liberating, valuing of non-harming. So if you haven't yet, you may want to get um, the refuge and precepts that we're going to chant now for the last 10 minutes. It takes a little bit less. 
that I think Gabe, or I know that Gabe put the link right there under your screen uh, on the YouTube channel. And you can click on that, or if you don't want to read with us, you can just listen. And this is a traditional recitation that people inspired by the Buddhist teachings. The Buddha was a human being like the rest of us, and uh, woke up, really deeply understood his heart, and had this real amazing knack to articulate the process of awakening which is really just this deep, subtle, human common sense, what to do with the human life, what to do with the human heart. And uh, when people inspired by these teachings get together, we often chant the refuges and precepts. We take refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, as just a summation of our practice. Being awake to the way that it is, that's Dhamma, Buddha knows Dhamma, and Sangha, this wise, compassionate, nimble activity of our lives, Sangha comes out of Buddha knowing Dhamma. And then we do the five precepts we chant, and we're going to read, I'll read today, um, some of Thich Nhat Hanh's comments. He's a really wise, beloved teacher from Vietnam originally, and got kicked out because he was a peace activist during the Vietnam War. And just uh, for our benefit in the West, because he spent so many decades in the West, he's now back in Vietnam teaching. And he has some beautiful, insightful comments about each of the five trainings in non-harming. So let's do this together. We first acknowledge our teacher, this person, the Buddha. We call the Buddha. This title just means awake. So this is the Namo Tassa. We do that three times. Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa and then we take refuge three times. It's a traditional way. The dutyampi means for a second time. And that third stanza, tatyampi, just means for a third time. Buddhang saranangachami, Dhammang saranangachami, Sangang saranangachami, Dutyampi buddhang saranangachami, Dutyampi dangmang saranangachami, Dutyampi sangang saranangachami, Tatyampi budang saranangachami, Tatyampi damang saranangachami, Tatyampi sangang saranangachami. Then we'll just take a few seconds and reflect on each of the three refuges. I take refuge in the Buddha, trusting our inherent capacity to be awake and intimate, the heart free from clinging. So just reflect on that for a few seconds. And we take a moment to reflect on the second refuge. I take refuge in the Dharma or Dhamma, trusting our inherent capacity to be willing to connect with the conditions here and now, 
moment by moment. So just reflect what that is to take refuge in Dhamma. And then the third refuge. I take refuge in the Sangha, trusting our inherent capacity to engage life with the vast space of wisdom and the profound sensitivity and responsivity of compassion. So again, just take a few seconds and reflect on what Sangha looks like for you where, where you've seen it in others. Not afraid to engage. And then turn the page and we'll do our five precepts these five mindfulness trainings. We're going to do first the Pali, then uh, then the English, and then I'll read Thich Nhat Hanh's translation, and you can read along with me if you have it. So the first precept. Panatipata where amani sika padang samhariyami I undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. And then Thich Nhat Hanh writes, Aware of the suffering caused by the destruction of life, I am committed to cultivating compassion and learning ways to protect the lives of all beings. I am determined not to kill, not to let others kill, and not to condone any act of killing in the world, in my thinking, and in my life. This is the first of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. So again, we'll take a few seconds and we'll just reflect on what that first training might look like in our lives. And now the second. Adina dana where amani sika padang samariyami I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. And then Tikdan Han writes, Aware of the suffering caused by exploitation, social injustice, stealing, and oppression, I am committed to cultivating loving-kindness and learning ways to work for the well-being of all beings. I will practice generos generosity by sharing my time, energy, and material resource resources with those who are in real need. I am determined not to steal and not to possess anything that should belong to others. I will respect the property of others but I will prevent others from profiting from human suffering or the suffering of other species on earth. This is the second of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. So we just reflect, what is, what might this look like in my life, this second training? And now the third. So when we're on retreat, we practice celibacy. But in daily life, not on retreat, we do the Kame Sumichachara, which is undertaking the training uh, to refrain from sexual misconduct. So let's chant this. Kame Sumichachara, where amani sika padang samariyami. I undertake the training to refrain from causing harm through sexual misconduct. Aware of the suffering caused by sexual misconduct, I am committed to cultivating responsibility 
and learning ways to protect the safety and integrity of individuals, couples, families, and society. I am determined not to engage in sexual activities without love and commitment. To preserve the happiness of myself and others, I am determined to respect my commitments and the commitments of others. I will do everything in my power to protect children from sexual abuse and to protect couples and families from being harmed by sexual misconduct. This is the third of the five mindfulness trainings I vow to study and practice it. So just reflecting on what that might look like in our lives. And now the fourth. Musawada where amani sikapadang samariyami. I undertake the training to refrain from false and harmful speech. And then Thich writes, Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful speech and the inability to listen to others, I am committed to cultivating loving speech and deep listening in order to bring joy and happiness to others and to relieve others of their suffering. Knowing that words can create happiness or suffering, I am determined to speak truthfully with words that inspire self-confidence, joy, and hope. I will not spread information that I do not know to be certain, and I will not criticize or condemn things of which I am not sure. I will refrain from uttering words with the intention of causing division or discord. I am determined to make efforts to reconcile and resolve all conflicts, however small. This is the fourth of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. So reflecting on wise speech. And now the last, number five. Sura Maria Maja Pamadatana, where Amani Sika Padang Samariami. I undertake the training to refrain from the misuse of intoxicants. Aware of the suffering caused by unmindful consumption, I am committed to the cultivation of good health, both physical and mental, for myself, my family, and my society, by practicing mindful eating, drinking, and consuming. I will ingest only items that preserve peace, well-being, and joy in my body, in my consciousness, and in the collective body and consciousness of my family and society. I am determined not to misuse alcohol or any other intoxicant or to ingest foods or other items that undermine spiritual growth, such as unwholesome TV programs, magazines, books, films, and conversations. I am aware that to damage my body or my consciousness with such poisons is to harm all beings. I understand that a proper diet is crucial for self-transformation and for the transformation of society. This is the fifth of the five mindfulness trainings. I vow to study and practice it. this valuing of being sober in life so that we refrain from harm.
And then the last blessing, Ida me silang magafalanyana sa pachayo ho tu. May my conduct lead to attainment of the deepest fruits of liberation. And taking these refuges, undertaking the five precepts, and practicing this way of awareness and insight gives rise to benefits without limit. We offer to share all blessings and merit with our parents, teachers, family, friends, and with all beings everywhere. May this life and practice contribute to the great stream of causes and conditions leading to happiness, peace, and liberation for all beings. May all beings be happy. So thanks for joining in for this refuge and precept ceremony. We'll do something similar at the end of September or early October, and then again near the winter solstice. And just uh, if you want to do it more regularly, which I highly recommend, just go ahead and print that uh, document that's linked there underneath the screen, your YouTube screen. And you might just put yourself on a weekly schedule and, you know, just adapt and adjust it so that it feels really alive for you and useful for you in remembering this difficult but really enlivening practice of moral conduct. So it doesn't exist in our lives as something heavy and that we don't really want to deal with. Anyway, it's been really great being with everybody. Uh, of course, many programs are coming up. You know, Shelley Graff teaches on Wednesday night and Shelley and many of the other people in her IMS teacher training group um, have a Tuesday evening program. I believe Patrice has one or two weeks left on the Parmi's class on late afternoon on Wednesday. Um, Shelley and I and Stacy McClendon are developing, and hopefully several other Common Ground teachers are developing a program on uh, Saturday the 25th on anger, contempt, and self-righteousness and how to work skillfully with these natural unavoidable emotions of anger. So join us for that on Saturday the 25th and other programs are coming up as well. Thanks everybody. Have a good week. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.